The following audio is from Cross Life Church in Tampa, Florida. We are a church that exists to help people find Christ, their place in the body, and their mission to the world. Our calling is to raise leaders and plant churches. So if you live in the Hudson area or near Wester Chapel, you can also check us out at one of our other locations. For more information, visit us at crosslife.net. All right, well, we've been in uh, the Gospel of John. We're walking through the Gospel of John. It's going to take us a little while to get through there. And last week, we ended up uh, walking through um, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. This morning, we want to look at John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Now, as we've been going through John... The whole gospel, just like the other gospels, are just testimonies of Jesus. And John specifically, just at the on, or at the toward the end of his book, he said, "Listen, I'm talking to you about this for one reason in particular that you would know that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you might have life through His name." And so this testimony, as we've been walking through, we just see how the book opens up and it gives heaven's testimony. And then it gives earth's testimony through John. And then it gives a testimony of Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And now again, here, looking at further testimony from John uh, concerning Jesus being the Son of God, writing about John the Baptist. And so, verse 22, we'll just kind of pick up there and read. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing near Anon, near Siloam, because there was plenty of water there and people were coming and being baptized. Verse 24, this was before John was put in prison. In verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and certain Jew, and a certain Jew. You might have and Jews, which is really not uh, a discrepancy, because there could have been a group of Jews there questioning John's disciples, and one of them maybe being the spokesman. So anyway, it says, and a Jew, and another thing about this is that when John uses the term Jew, if you were just to uh, type in, in a, in, a, in a concordance, and you just type in Jew, and you look in John, where the occasions are there, almost every one of them, when John uses the term Jew, he's specifically talking about religious leaders, a scribe, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a lawyer, specifically. So that's kind of important to keep in mind, because the disciples of John were Jews. So anyway, he says, and there came to John... Uh, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And it says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So the setting is, is that Jesus is baptizing and John's disciples are baptizing, and a Jew comes to John's disciples, and they, he be, they begin to question. Here it says, really, what happened is there was an argument uh, that broke out concerning what was taking place. It says in some translations, what's it say, concerning ceremonial washing. And so, 
John's disciples, they're preaching and baptizing, and during that time, these Jews or some Jews just approach him, and they just begin to argue about what they're doing. And it doesn't necessarily specify specifically what they were arguing about, but it seems to be around this idea of baptism, about John's baptism and about Jesus's baptism. And maybe the Jews may have been arguing about John, uh, Jesus's baptism being greater than John's. It's hard to know. In the earlier part, when we looked at John the Baptist, remember the religious leaders came to him and they said, what are you doing baptizing? What's your authority for doing that? You know, you're not, you're not, you're not Elijah, you're not a prophet. Like, what authority do you have to be doing this? So it's kind of unclear. But as we read through the text, it kind of, it kind of susses out a little bit about what may have been taking place because in verse 26, that argument uh, concerning the two may have to do with Jesus' baptism being greater uh, than John's. Verse 26, and so the disciples, so this argument comes up, verse 26, and so the disciples of John, they go to John and they say, hey, Rabbi, that man, depending on the translation you have, I think this is interesting, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one who you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everybody is going to him. Now, two things about that is that, first of all, what did John say? They were with him. What What was John's profession about Jesus when Jesus comes on the scene? He said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing to Jesus and here... For whatever reason, they must have been there, and they're going, that man. That man, John identifies as the Messiah. And he said that he has testified, I have testified to you about who he is. He's the Messiah, but they seem to downplay who Jesus was. And maybe it's because John comes on the scene, and John's a forerunner. There's a lot of... uh, hype possibly. There's a lot of activity around John, and now all this is beginning to move away from John and his disciples. So these disciples seem kind of maybe uh, a little unsettled about it. Maybe they're disturbed about what is going on. I don't know. Maybe they're a little jealous. Maybe they're a little envious about what's taking place. You know, the, all of a sudden, everybody's coming to them to John and, and his disciples, and they're hearing about this message that he's preaching, and they're being baptized. There's a lot of activity now. Jesus and his disciples, they're baptizing, and it seems like the crowds are just shifting, and they're moving away from John and going to Jesus, and so the disciples kind of bring it before him. Maybe it was in the thought about, hey, I don't know if you know what's going on, but what are you going to do about this? Or, could have been honest, what, what should we know about what is taking place? Because it seems that everybody is following him. And so, in verse 27 and 28, John answers, and he says this, a person cannot receive anything unless it is given him from heaven. And you yourselves can testify that I said that I am not the Christ, 
but I have been sent before him. So John is reminding them, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not the Christ. In other words, in my mind, he's going, he is, I'm not. So if, you, if you're going to follow anybody, you need to follow him. You shouldn't be following me. And anyway, it, John's intention was never to gather crowds to follow him, right? John's intention, John's calling, John's purpose was being a voice in the wilderness, pointing people to Jesus. So he said in verse 27, in, in my mind, he's saying, look, uh, I have what I have, or what I have been given is from heaven, or what I have been given to do is from God. So in other words, this, what's going on here is out of my control. I, I'm doing and been doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and so what I have, I've been given from God, and I have been given the purpose of this ministry, and the purpose of this ministry is to point people to Jesus. So he's reminding his disciples about what is taking place. And so John's calling and mission again, it was simply to be a voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. And, and, and his, also his message, his message wasn't his message. Because his message was that he was was what God had given him. So his message of repentance and preparing the way for the Lord was not his, but it was the Lord's. All right. So a thought about this is that um, I think it's such an important thing for us to keep in mind where we need to keep directing people. So you may win someone to the Lord, you may be discipling someone, but what are we discipling them towards? Ultimately, where do you want people to go to? Where do you want people to get to the place where their first go-to person is? And that's Jesus. We're not here to have people gather around us and follow us for the sake of following us. All of us. Our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. Our, what we're supposed to be doing is we're supposed to constantly be pointing people to Jesus. And I know that that gets tricky because all of us, if we've had opportunity to share Christ with people, you know, they, they're going to they're gonna find the easiest route to get answers. And sometimes it's a face-to-face. They're just going to come and they're going to go, Joan, I don't know what to do. This is where I'm at. Tell me what I need to do. And Joan's going to do, like many of us, say, well, uh, what has Jesus told you? Well, I don't know. Uh, Well, that would probably be a good question. I don't really know about your life. So maybe it would be a good idea that you go to Jesus. Now, I can guide you on some principles of truth, but ultimately, you have to go to Jesus. And I've said this so many times. I work with a bunch of young guys and uh, church planters, and they want to come to me, and they want to go, Tracy, what do I do? And I go, well, I don't know. What has Jesus told you to do? Well, I don't really know. And I said, well, I think that probably what you need to do is do that. I think you need to run to him, but it's just like I don't hear. And I said, well, I I don't have any real answers for you, except that I know this. 
He has the answer for your life. I don't. Now, here's some truths I know, that he won't leave you nor forsake you, that he said he would be there for you, that he would guide you with his eye, that he would be the one that would direct and encourage you. He's the one that called you. I haven't. And they always said, man, I hate that about you. You know, they have to do the hard work of hearing. And I'm telling you what, for all of us, that gets tricky, the hard work of hearing. I mean, I'm like you. I, I just think that, I think it'd be great just to call 911, come on down, Jesus, and just sit across from him, take a chair, him sit there, and just ask him some questions directly, and him just give it right back. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. That's not how it works, though, right? And so John, again, he's reminding his disciples that everything that he's doing is all about Jesus. So what he's been given, he's been given to do what he's doing, and that is simply to prepare a way. Now think about for our own lives and ministry, uh, you know, all of us could want to do a lot of different things, but really what has the Lord called you to do? Well, I think we all have a general call, like I said, that ministry of reconciliation, but sometimes specific things that God has given us to do. So we just kind of need to stay in our lane, doing what he has asked. It reminds me about John or James chapter 1. Uh, it was in my reading this morning. It says that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So everything we have, everything we've been given, listen, it wasn't any of our decisions to follow Jesus. It was God reaching, tugging on our life, bringing us to a place to realize that we needed him, and then we made that decision to follow. And then uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, the same way it says each one of us should use whatever gift we have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So if you speak, you should speak as one speaking the very words of God. If you serve, you should do it with the strength that God provides so that all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Any thoughts about any of that so far? What we've been doing as we've been walking through this study, we've just been getting some comments back and forth. Anybody got any thoughts about what we've commented on so far? Yes, no? That's all we get? Anybody? All right, well, let's roll on. One of the things that I think is important, and we talked about it when we first, when we did the introduction to the book of John, I think, or maybe it was the first chapter, uh, somewhere in the first chapter, but this reiterates something that we need to keep in mind. Uh, and this section of Scripture we're looking at can actually kind of be divided into like three parts. Um, and it really highlights the significance of what was occurring here in John and Jesus' ministry in their relationship. So John the Baptist, we talked about, he was this, he was this from the Old Testament... Uh, remember the last words in Malachi says that he would send someone 
And then you get into the New Testament, we find out that the first thing that happens after this 400 years of silence is that an angel of the Lord comes to speak to Zechariah. I mentioned that the name Zechariah means God remembers. It's so significant for us that after 400 years, there's the promise that God's going to send someone. 400 years later, God just, it's like God is in a megaphone going, I remember. And he speaks to Zechariah about a forerunner who had come before Messiah. And so, John's ministry is his transitional ministry from this old covenant into a new covenant. And what takes place is now Jesus is coming on the scene, and now Jesus is bringing in this new covenant, fulfilling the ministry that God had given him. So the old covenant, well, there was this long time frame of God's interactions with man, and yet there was that the scriptures all the way through foretold of one that would come, what would bring a new covenant. Now Jesus is revealing God's new covenant to humanity. So this is what's taking place with John in this transition from him being a voice of one crying in the wilderness, pointing to and causing everyone to look to and to trust who he is pointing at, and that was Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so... John is just, he, he, knows that he knows his place. And so John's not jealous about what's taking place. He's excited about what's taking place. It's almost like I did my job. <laughs> They're doing it. They're following Jesus. Yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. I'm supposed to just do, here's my part. Here's my place. And so it just really shows his faithfulness and his calling and purpose for which God had called him to. And at the same time, he is acknowledging the superiority and deity of who Jesus is. So, apparently, John's disciples had lost sight of who Jesus was. And I like it because, remember how they they just go, you know that man on the other side of the Jordan, you know, the one that you talked about, that, that guy. And John's going, hey, hello, that guy, that guy's the guy. That guy, that guy is the Messiah. That guy is the Son of God. And you guys have lost sight of that. You've clearly missed uh, what I'm supposed to be doing. Didn't you hear me say, I am? And it's almost like uh, when he says, I am the voice of one call in the wilderness, basically he's going, because when the disciples, uh, the religious leaders come to him, they, they just start at, riddling with questions going, whoa, hold up. This is my part. This, this is just who I am. And who I am is not important. Who I'm telling you about, he's important. That's really where you need to fix your attention. And so apparently they maybe lost sight of or failed to see that John's ministry had a means to an end. And so John reminds him in verse 28, He says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. In other words, I have been, I'm I'm simply, I've been sent. That word is prophet. I'm just a messenger. I'm a messenger, and here's the message. And so I love that about John. I've been sent. I've just been sent ahead to, to prepare a way for him I'm not here to compete. I'm here to point. And so verse 29 then, 
says, Now he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, so this joy of mine has been made full. All right, now I don't know about you, but let me just be honest. How many times do you read Scripture and you go, what? What in the world does that mean? That's this verse. I mean, he's going, hey, you know, I just know that I've been sent ahead. And then, 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 he, then he says, well, he who has a bride is a bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears rejoices greatly because he hears a bridegroom voice. I'm going, okay, what? it's like fuzzy, like very opaque. Like when you walk into water that's clear and there's mud on the bottom and all of a sudden you can't see your feet. And I'm just going, what in the world does that mean? And this is what's beautiful about getting stuck. If you're, if you're like me, uh, when I come across verses like this and I get stuck, the first thing I do, you saw the reaction that I had. I have it at home. Out loud, I have it at home. Matter of fact, when I went through this again, I went, another one. I have no idea what this means. But what I do is I just kind of dive in a little bit. And what we should do is dive in a little bit. Just start, begin to say, you know what? I don't want to have all these questions. Maybe I should, maybe I should pause and take a little more time to try and figure out what's going on. So, John is trying to let his disciples, he's trying to give them a clear picture of his role, of his place. And he's trying to let them know how fulfilled he is in that as well. He's finding great joy. So when John is there, and this Jesus and his disciples are baptizing, and people are running to Jesus, John is just like, yeah. And they're going, no. But he's trying to paint a picture. How can I communicate them my role? How can I communicate to them that they'll grab a hold of that they, that they, they could really understand? And so he uses this imagery about a bridegroom. And the image of the bridegroom would have been significant to the Jew, uh, the Jewish people, because Jehovah God often spoke of having this marriage covenant with the nation of Israel. And, and John emphasizes this kind of a well-known picture that he and the Jews um, would have understood. And he, they would have immediately caught that John and Jesus are not in competition, but John is the servant of Jesus to do what he needs to for Jesus. And he uses this image of a bridegroom. So John said he was the friend of the bridegroom. He says, depending on the translation, his chosen friend. Now, in our language, it would be best man. So John is painting this picture. He's going, hey, you need to understand, I'm, I'm like the, the best man. Now, the best man back in those times had uh, a lot of responsibilities in a marriage covenant. So he would be selected by the bridegroom, and when he was selected by the bridegroom, he would arrange the contract. He would act on behalf of the bridegroom during the betrothal, and he would arrange for, and he would preside over the festivities of the wedding day itself. And it was a real position of honor, which the bridegroom gave to his chief friend. And if you think about it, who else but the 
the best man would rejoice the greatest with his friend to see all of this moving forward and all of this being fulfilled. And John basically is saying, I'm in this place and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do so all this can happen, so all this could be fulfilled and I am finding such joy in seeing that happen right before my eyes. And so now the picture becomes clearer about what John is trying to let his disciples know. It's like, this is what I've been called to do. This is so, this is so good. I am so excited. I've been here and I have been preaching repentance. I've been pointing people to Jesus. I have been fulfilling my role in this relationship. I've been doing what I've been supposed to be doing, and now it's being fulfilled. You, it's almost like he's telling them, if you understand where I am, you should be rejoicing with me that this is taking place. Does that make a little more sense? Maybe give us a little bit more clarity about what's going on? All right. You know, it's, uh, when I was thinking about this, the first thing I thought about was in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Because John, so his, his ministry was fleeting. It was, it was a short amount of time that John was on the scene and then he was gone. Yet he, 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 he was finding joy in what God had called him to do. And in Hebrews chapter, two, or Hebrews chapter 1, verse, or 12 verses 1 and 2, we kind of find the same thing. Where he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. The reason I added one is because this is an admonition for us. Look, God's called you to do something. I don't know what it is exactly. I mean, we all have the ministry of reconciliation, but there might be other things. And what we need to do is know that that's what God dropped in our plate. And if he dropped it in our plate, then he's going to give us a grace to fulfill it. And he's going to do what he wants to do through it. So we should not be discouraged about it. Because sometimes, ministry, you can get discouraged. You can just be plugging down the road. It can be moms at home and the ministry that you can have. It could be at your work and the ministry you have. It could be in some other ministry, the homeless ministry, it's like week after week, you're going out there ministering to the homeless, and, and you can think, man, I just, it's like, am I making a difference? Well, let me just say this, yes, you are. You are making a difference. So, just don't get drugged down, but let us run with patience race that is set before us. Verse 2 Fixing our eyes on Jesus, a pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Here's the phrase. Who for the joy that was set before him. So John, he's running the race, and he's got this great joy in what he's doing. This is what was set before him, and he's finding great joy in doing that. And Jesus, in the same way, Jesus has been called, and he's finding joy in what he's doing. But, but this one is a little tricky for who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father. His was tricky. Remember in the garden, Father, you sure about this? Is there any other way we can get around this? No, but I'll do whatever you want me to do. So John, again, expressing his genuine joy that Jesus was being accepted by the people. Any thoughts? 
Y'all quiet today. Let me get a mic to you. Excuse me. Sometimes I think these thoughts are just random, but it's it's a little fascinating that while that joy is going on, you know, in a sense, Jesus knows he's going to the cross that some, maybe some people in the back, way in the back, are, are going to be part of that agenda. And it's, it's just this juxtaposition where there's this great joy, and yet there's a, and we know that persecution, Christ talks about that and that being tied to joy. And I, I don't know, it just comes to my, my forefront in the backdrop of today, you know. Um, I've had a, the blessed experience recently of spending time with some old friends from college that aren't saved and still aren't saved. And it's been 20-something years and just sharing life. And, and uh, you know, they've made a lot of different choices. And they're, so their kids are, are, are making different choices that parents aren't happy with now that they're in their 20s and so forth. But it's just um, just all of that mixture of the joy of being together and in our society, seeing the persecution, sort of seeing the, the it's a tough mix, you know? I don't know if that makes sense. But. Someone else, Keith? You know, it's kind of like how you were saying how John has a role to play and we all have a role to play. It's just awesome if you think about it, that God allows us the privilege to be part of his mission and ministry. And as Christians, like you said, you know, whether it's a homeless minister or whatever you do, sometimes you don't always see the results, but down the road we'll see them. And it just goes to show that if we allow God to work through us as we're salt and light to the world, people will come to know the Lord. And what greater pleasure and joy should we get than knowing that our obedience to the Father has led someone else to the Lord? Because I like what John says later on, too, is that I must decrease so he must increase. In other words, we're not Jesus. And that's what, another thing that's really good too, isn't it? Because we're flawed people no matter what. And even though Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, and that's what we should do, the bottom line is that Christ is the example. We're just an opportunity and a vessel to be that witness. We are not Jesus, so we're not perfect. And people can see in our lives, even though we're not perfect, they can see that we love the Lord and our, our love that God gives us goes out to them. And what I've always said is one of the greatest things that Jesus couldn't do is John 1.9, is that we as Christians, when we're wrong, we can ask for forgiveness from God and from people. And what better thing nowadays, because you see it in the world today, people do things all the time that's wrong, and they don't never ask for forgiveness because they think it's no big deal. But as Christians, to me, that's a great witness when we mess up, that we ask for forgiveness from God and from people. Okay. Someone else? Ann? Oh, go ahead. Um, I like when you mentioned just an observation, downplaying. Uh, in a Catholic, I grew up Catholic, we downplay, I, that's my observation, downplaying Jesus, because when you say, blessed are those, um, blessed is she, because who carries the womb of Jesus uh, pertaining to Mary. And then it's been a practice nowadays. That's just an observation. It's been a practice nowadays. And it's been downplayed. And in, in the prayer, it, it says that uh, Mary pray for us until the hour of our death. So it's redirecting away 
the focus on who's the savior who actually pray and who, whom I remember when the, when there's the, the, what do you call this? In the cross during that, uh, Jesus, uh, he said to the thief, he said that you're going to be with me in paradise in that last moment. And when remembering that prayer, I said, so it's somewhat like confusing to me because it's redirecting and downplaying Jesus Christ as the one who, who gives us, who, who, whom he will receive salvation. So that's just my observation on when you say downplaying because it's so easy to look at that aspect that people believe on that. And that's what... I grew up with. Mm -hmm. Ian? You know, it's, it's always interesting. I've said it before. Is it's, you know, you're sharing Christ, and you're almost going, okay, so there's this invisible guy, right? He, he actually was from outer space, and he came down to earth. You know, I mean, when, a lot of times when you're sharing the gospel, it just seems to get a little bit tricky, even for us. Ian? Um, on that note of uh, joy, my joy made full, you know, all the, there's a lot of scripture that tells us that we can have joy, even though all the circumstances that are going on around us, and we're like, how can I find joy, you know? Well, the secret is in, in 30, which he must increase, therefore I must decrease. And um, that idea in Romans chapter 8, where he says that, um, everybody knows that he says that uh, it, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. But the next verse, I think, is even more important because we've been predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Our joy will be more and more as we allow God to conform us to the image of his son and become more and more like Jesus. Let him increase and us decrease and our joy can be made full also. What are some other, what kind of, what's your translation read on verse 30, 330? Mine is, he must increase, I must decrease. Any other translations? He must become greater. He must become greater, and I must become less. Huh. Thoughts about that verse? Somebody? Uh, Keith? Well, I mean, that verse really is, isn't that talking specifically about John? Because yeah. John, before Jesus, he was the one that, you know, baptized everybody, talked to him about repenting and baptized with water and all that. Now that the Messiah is on the scene and Jesus is growing in his ministry, John's not there to compete with him. He's there to decrease. So therefore, like you said earlier, John fulfilled his job, you know, for us, it's kind of almost, well, it's not the opposite, but it's like, as Christians, we're becoming more like Christ. It has nothing to do with Jesus decreasing. Jesus is who Jesus is. But for us, we become more like Jesus, and Jesus always is who he is. But for John, on the earth, as his public ministry, he was on the decrease because he fulfilled his job. He's not there to compete, and Jesus is on the rise of his ministry. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? So... Um when we were beginning to learn about what we were going to be studying in John 3, 23, 22 through 36, I was listening to uh, a guy on the radio, on Moody Radio, and he was talking about decreasing and increasing. And he referred to a guy 
uh, hitting a sacrificial bunt. You got a guy on first base. The you know the full it's a full count. The guy at home plate batting. He knows he can just jack it over the center field. But what does he do? He he bunts the ball so the guy on first base, knowing that the guy on first base is a faster runner, so he could advance. Okay. Somebody else? Doug? Um, yeah, so a couple things. To, I think to, to Keith's point, um, the difference between John and ourselves is that John has a public ministry there. But I think the similarity is is that if we're talking to somebody about Christ and bringing them to Christ, there's a point there where we decrease, right? We should decrease and Christ should increase mm -hmm. in that person's life. Um, I think it's interesting that when you went back to a man can receive only what is given to him from heaven is applicable to Jesus as much as John in that statement. Because Jesus is a man at that point, all man, and he's been given, right? And he says it all the time. What my Father has given me, this is what I've been given, uh, given from the Father. So I, I think it's important for us to know that what we've been given, and you said something about stay in your lane, right? And that's the bridegroom or the friend of the bridegroom. He's up front, right, before the wedding. He's up front doing everything but when that bridegroom comes, he steps aside and says, my job is done. Mm -hmm. It's now his turn to, mm -hmm. to be the spotlight. Yeah, it reminds me of that whole thought there. You know, in David, I think it's in Psalm 78, how David served the Lord with integrity of heart and then was gathered together with his ancestors. It says it again in Acts, 6, uh, Acts 13, 36. It says, now when David served God's purpose... In his own generation, he fell asleep and he was buried with his ancestors. And, you know, for our lives, I think we need to kind of have an understanding. You know, I'm, I'm here to do what God has called me. And when God calls me home, I'm going home. That's no more nor less. That's what I'm, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I should be doing. Yeah, I was just going to add on what you said. You said David is um, Jonathan. You know, John's sort of like does the same thing that Jonathan does and says, yeah, all eyes are on me, but all eyes should be on him. On David. He's about David. King. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Even, though, even though he was in line to be the king. Yeah. He, he sort of, you know. All right. Uh, let's look at verses 31 through 36. It says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks, his own, speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything into His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And again, now we just see this contrast. And the, this contrast between the earthly and the heavenly. And, and John picks up on it in chapter 5 
where he's speaking to the Jewish leaders and he's talking about John. He's saying that John was a lamp and, and he burned and he gave light. So in other words, John had this temporary thing that he was doing. And it, he goes on to say, and you really chose to embrace that when he first came. And then verse 36 in John chapter 5, he says, But I have testimony that is weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. So John, again, this earthly ministry that he's given. But Jesus is, John is saying, but Jesus has this, uh, this heavenly testimony. And so Jesus spoke about what he knew. It says he spoke concerning the things that were of heaven. And reality, I mean, he's from heaven. So if anybody knows what's going on here, it's Jesus. And Jesus has got this heavenly testimony. He's speaking from what he knew. While others, like John, what he was speaking was what had been revealed to him. And so John is pointing again to the testimony of Jesus being far greater. And then... Again, earlier in John, remember he testified, he said, this is about who I said, he is greater than me. So John basically in this, he's saying, look, there's this difference, there's a difference between John's ministry and Jesus's. John's ministry was given to him, it was revealed to him, the message, he, he only got whatever God revealed to him, is way different with Jesus, Jesus knew about what was taking place because he was there before the foundations of the earth. Verse 32 then go on to say what he has seen and heard, Jesus and what he testifies about. That's the deal. That's the real deal. But look what happens. It says here, he's the one, uh, what he has seen and heard and of what he testifies and no one receives his testimony. It's almost like you're all embracing what I've been saying, but the one that you should be listening to, you're not receiving his testimony, he, he's got first-hand knowledge. He's not a spirit-inspired prophet. He's not an angel. He's God, very God. And the tragedy that we see, a matter of fact, a theme through John is, the, a corresponding theme is that you see is all these contrasts, light and dark, belief and unbelief, that, that just run through the gospel of John. And what was taking place here is, look, Here's Jesus. He's the one that has, is telling you and testifying firsthand knowledge about what, who God is and about what God's plan is, and you guys are refusing uh, to believe him. I like the uh, New Living Translation. It says, how few believe what he tells them. How few believe. I mean, we all struggle at some point, but... Uh, as God continues to speak, somewhere along the line, uh, hopefully what happens is we just open up our lives to embrace what God is saying to us. So this theme of unbelief that you can see through John is actually expressed in the very beginning of John, in John chapter 1, where it says, he came to his own, but his own received him not. So we see that John's, John's first testimony about Jesus and about John the Baptist and what John the Baptist was saying about Jesus is being reiterated again. Here he comes. He's telling what is taking place and you 
are not believing what he has been showing you. Now, verse 33, where he says, then it goes on to say, yet he who has received his testimony. Uh, I, I don't know what your translations are. Uh, one of the translations says, yet he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this. Has set his seal to this, that God is true. And so in that translation, it's one of those that's, okay, what is he talking about? Believing is expressed by sealing, and we know what it was like back in those days when somebody was going to send a document, personal document from them. They would take the scroll, they would write on the scroll, could be a legal document, would roll it up. What would they do? They took wax, and then they had a signet ring. They would seal it, basically verifying this document is for me, this document is true, uh, I affirm this document. And here John is, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's equating it with almost like a, a legal statement, uh, a personal affirmation that if you have received him, it's like set in a seal, I affirm, I testify that God is true. And it's really a strong, strong statement that John is making about those who believe. So there's a lot that don't believe. But if you do believe, let me just tell you how legal and binding that faith is that you're putting your trust in Him, that God is true is. It's like putting a signet ring on a sealed document. You own it. You attest to it. You affirm your faith in it. Any thoughts about that? He's saying that um, you affirm what is true, and we know that the word here is aletheian. It describes not just what is true or sincere, but is real. What is correct and what is faithful, what is trustworthy and what is genuine. Keith? I'm just here thinking, we affirm what is true by the way we live our lives. We affirm what is true by the way we live our lives? By the way we you know, share it more with others. But, I mean, if we believe it to be true, and it's in our hearts, then we're going to express that way. Free of the Spirit, basically. If you say it's true, or it's like saying it's the truth, then you have to stop and wonder, do you really believe it to be true? Well, Revelations, what say we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and what? The word of our testimony, the word of our testimony is powerful. Anyone else? All right. Uh, let's see. John chapter 3, verse 34. Just emphasizing the fact that Jesus, verse 33, uh, let me get there. Talking about verse 32 about uh, the one that has come that testifies. Verse 34 Now he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So John is emphasizing again, look, you, Jesus has come to testify and you haven't received his testimony. What you, what you need to understand is when he speaks, 
Man, he speaks from what he knows. And what he's speaking, he's speaking the very words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. So God's Son, Jesus Christ, a couple things about this. First of all, he's not speaking his own words, but the words of God. And he does it through the Spirit that God has given him. So his words aren't merely human words, but they're divine. And therefore, to receive his witness is the same thing to receiving the witness of God. So Jesus really sets this example for us, and we find it throughout Scripture all over, how Jesus is revealing to us and kind of sets an example for us. Look, I'm merely telling you what is true from God. And I am receiving, I'm getting the same thing you are. I'm receiving from the Spirit of God, and as I'm receiving from the Spirit of God, I'm doing what the Spirit of God is telling me to do, and, and I am saying what He is telling me to say. So there's this example that uh, we have through Jesus. And so there are these uh, two compelling statements, or parallels, two parallel statements in verse 34 that really show Jesus' authority that it comes from God. He says, first of all, that Jesus had been sent. And secondly, that he has not just been sent in his own might, but he's been sent and he's been given the Spirit of God with full measure. So it's not with a small degree that Jesus has from the Spirit of God. And in the same way for us, it's not a small degree for us that we have. Remember in the Old Testament, I think it's in Leviticus, it says that the prophet, the Spirit of God would rest on the prophets and they would have the Spirit with measure. In other words, they couldn't, they, they could only do whatever they were given. So there was a measure. Here it says that in the Hebrew term, this word without measure means that it had no limit. So Jesus' ministry was a ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit without any limit to it. And so he was trying to tell them, look, you need to know John, John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus and you're not believing Jesus and you need to understand who Jesus was. I mean, he's there. He really knows what's going on. He's speaking not his own, but the very words of God. He's speaking, and he's speaking them through the power of the Spirit, which has been given no limit on his life. The prophets of old and men of old had the Spirit with measure. But now here, Jesus comes on the scene, and there is no limit to God's enablement in his life to fulfill what God has caused him to fulfill. And I think about that so much in the same way for us. We have the same way. We, we have been given the fullness of the Spirit. In other words, a lot of times it's like, yeah, I can't do that. I don't understand. I don't know. Well, what does Jesus do when he doesn't understand and he doesn't know? Because Jesus did fulfill his ministry as a man. He was dependent upon the Father. He prayed. He asked the Father what to do. I can only do what my Father tells me to do. I can only say what my Father tells me to say. I'm depending. It says that he submitted himself and be, humbled himself and became as a man. He became subject. 
And so what we need to understand about the ministry of Jesus and how he did, we should be understanding from it to model from it. We, in the same way, God's, God gives us his spirit, enabling us to do what he's asking for us to do what he's asking of us to do. And I think that you get to see that some in um, First, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, whereas according as divine power uh, has given us all things, right? He has been given us, uh, given us everything we need to live a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these precious promises, we have this ability to participate in the things of God and the Spirit of God, escaping this world that is filled with corruption. Any thoughts? I was thinking, you know, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches without me, you can do nothing. You, know, you think about it, when Jesus sent out the 70, he said, don't worry about what you're saying, right? When Peter spoke at Pentecost, the Spirit was upon him. You know, you see Stephen standing up being having rocks thrown at him, seeing the Lord talking about that. And in our own lives, you know, we talked about it before, I think the other day, when someone was talking about the earth, sometimes have fear about witnessing this stuff, and that's normal in your life, but if you saw how God would work through you, allow God to say those words out to you, even though at the time you may not even understand exactly what's going on, God's words go out, and it affects people, and reminds them, and it's a great witness, but the Spirit of God living in believers today, I mean, I think you brought it up one time, it's kind of cool, um, what was it one time about, in the Old Testament or something, what would have been like, you know, to to walk here or to do this, so what would it have been like to hang out with Jesus, but if when we get to heaven, it's almost like Moses would say, what's it like to have Jesus live within you every day? In other words, we don't, I think as believers sometimes, we don't realize the power we have within us. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's to be used for good, obviously, and it is only to be used for good, and that's how it works, but I'm just saying, we as believers sometimes, I think we, we forget we're never alone. The Spirit of God lives within us and empowers us to do mighty things, right? God's strength is shown in our well, what is disciples, it says, Jesus said, the Spirit has God been with you, but he now will be in you. The huge difference. Anyone else? All right, well, let me finish up with this. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 35 and 36. It says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So we know, reading through Scripture, when you look in Hebrews where it says, in the last days God has spoken to us. God used to speak. God spoke in times past, but now this is the way that it's working. We learn that uh, in Revelations, when you read through Revelations, you get the distinct uh, knowledge that Jesus, that God has dropped into Jesus all things. He has given all things into his hands. And it says, because of his love for the Son, the Father has given him this supreme authority over all things. And so this is just, again, John is pointing again to the reality of who Jesus is. He's a son of God. He's the Messiah. He's pointing to the deity of Jesus. And then I love how uh, this discourse ends because it ends in the same way that 
the synopsis of what Jesus was trying to say to Nicodemus. Now again, just think of the emphasis as we go through John, the emphasis on who Jesus is and what he's come to do. It, he just, it's a continual emphasis about what is taking place. And here in this last verse, it just emphasizes again the, uh, what we pull from Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. And that is this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the message for us, the encouragement for us is a life that we receive. The admonition for us, the encouragement for us as we share faith is to get others to be able to have what we have so that they do not have to incur the wrath of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but ever return to last. But God did not send his, this is the message. Look, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's what the world around us, that's what, that's what the devil wants people to see. He just wants to, he wants, he wants them to see this, side of God, the side that he paints of God that is judgmental and wrathful. When from the beginning of creation, God loved the world. And God displayed his love in such a way that he sent his son to die on a cross to rescue the world because his intent was not to bring condemnation. His intent was to bring rescue. Amen? Amen. 